So good to be with you guys. If you didn't know, my name is Victor, and I'm one of the staff members here at Chi Alpha, and I'm just so honored to get to be here in front of all of you and be able to just worship King Jesus. Um, if you're new here, I just want to say thank you for spending your Tuesday night here. There's so many other things you could have been doing, and there's finals coming up, and you probably have a bunch of projects and exams, but thank you from the bottom of my heart and the heart of the staff. Thank you for spending your Tuesday night here. Um, and if I don't know you, if, if you would, I would love to get the chance to meet you. So I would love to find you after service and get to know a little bit about you. So tonight we're going to continue on in our series, A Life Worth Emulating, and take a look into the life of one of the most well-known biblical kings, King David. So for those of you who don't know who King David is, he's one of the most popular and influential biblical figures from the Old Testament. He was anointed king as a 14 or 15-year-old. Um, he slayed a nine-and-a-half foot giant known as Goliath with just a sling and a rock, and he unified a divided kingdom. He wrote psalms that have impacted generations and generations and generations of Jesus followers, and he's the only man in the Bible to be described as a man after God's own heart. So our text today takes place in the middle of a season um, where the nations are battling each other, and David is supposed to be out um, in front of his army leading them and guiding them. But instead, we find out that he's in his palace. So we'll start our story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, if you want to pull out your Bibles, your phones, whatever you need to do. So it says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites, and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and came to her, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself for uncleanliness, then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Let's pray. Jesus, we just ask you to be here. Jesus, we just ask that you would uh, just reveal something to our hearts tonight. And Jesus, we just pray that as we talk about grace, God, that you would break chains tonight and that you would bring people home. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start off by telling a story. In 2017, my parents had just gotten a brand new car, and it was my dad's prized possession. I mean, you don't understand. He drove all the way to Tennessee to buy this car, which is 14 hours away. But it was such an incredible deal, and the reality was that they needed a car. They, need, they were, had given me their old one, and so they didn't have anything at the time. It was truly a godsend. So fast forward to that winter break. I go home. And if you didn't know me, I'm from a very small town. And for those of you who didn't grow up in a small town, everything is far away. Our closest Walmart was 45 minutes away. If you forgot something, you're in trouble. I tell you what. So we spent a lot of time driving, obviously, because we had to go. The closest Walmart to us was in Mason City. I'm from a small town named Britt. So one day during the week, my mom needs to run some errands and pick up some groceries. Um, and she really doesn't like to drive, so she made me drive, figures. And so we go to Mason City, we, need to do, we do what we need to do, um, we pick up groceries, we run our errands and all that. 
And on our way back, we're driving through Clear Lake, um, which is about 10 minutes outside of uh, Mason City. And we still have 45 minutes to drive, and it's already 2 o'clock in the afternoon, so we need to stop and get some lunch. And we decided to go through Culver's drive through So we got the big deal, you know, we got a burger and fries, we got the small sundae on the side, like, things are looking good, like, I'm, I'm ready to go. And as we're driving through Clear Lake, I approach this light, and there's this long line of cars. It's only a one-lane in Clear Lake. I don't really know why it is, but it's like that. And so there's this huge line, and I'm slowly approaching it, and it turns green. And at this point, I'm kind of seeing, I was like, oh, by the time I get there, it's going to start moving, and by the time I, it's going to be fine. And so I don't really slow down. And then, in one moment, I'm not even kidding you, everything happened in one moment. I dropped some, something fell from the Culver's bag onto the ground. And I get distracted, because for me, in my head, it's like, oh, crap, a ketchup packet fell on the ground. Or I don't even know what it is. And so I look down, and it just happens so that at that moment, something happens, and the two cars in front of us have to suddenly stop. And by the time I look up, the truck in front of me is 10 feet away from me. My dad's brand new car. Boom. I hit the car, and I, like, I just remember my mom had, like, all sorts. She had a milkshake on her shoulder. It was just a, it was a really, really bad time, but the thing is that when I got done, or when that was happening, I was freaking out. I was like, oh, my gosh, it's my dad's new car. What am I supposed to do? I've never been in an accident. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. Am I supposed to get out? Am I supposed to, like, just drive? I have no idea what the heck I'm supposed to do. <laughs> And I'm so worried about the damage in the front of our car. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, oh, geez. And so I call my dad. And he, it's interesting because he didn't actually think that I was, he thought that I was joking. And he didn't, it didn't, like, register in his head that I actually wasn't an accident. But then he realized it. And then he was not very happy. <laughs> but anyways, he tells me what to do. And the sad part is that we have to end up calling the police because the car that I hit was part of a company. And so there was this whole ordeal. I ended up getting a super expensive ticket. And the truck actually that I hit wasn't that bad, but the front of my dad's car was completely wrecked. So fast forward to when I get home, my dad sees me and he's super unhappy, super disappointed. He's just, he's frustrated and I get it. You know, I, I screwed up his car. And so I'm so upset at myself that the next morning we're supposed to go Christmas shopping. And my mom opens the door and is like, okay, come on, you have to go get ready. And I just say, I'm not going. Deeply sad, just saying, I'm not going to go. Because I knew that I had messed up my dad's car. And not only that, but I knew that I didn't have the money to fix it. I didn't have a job. I was a college student at the time. And so they, they left. They didn't really say anything. And... I really just spent the entire day just pacing and, and being confused and just frustrated at myself and running through the different scenarios. If I would have done this, if I would have noticed that, if I would have paid more attention, that I, I tire myself out. I literally get so tired of just being anxious and worried that I just become sad for the rest of the day. So then my parents get back, and I'm, again, my dad can visibly see my face that I'm upset, that I'm sad. And so he comes up to me, and he says... I know you don't have a job, and I know that you don't have the money, and whatever money you do have, you need it. And he says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. 
Can you imagine that feeling? Have you guys ever had one of those moments where you messed up and you're supposed to pay for it, but instead the person who takes it, they decide to pay for it. And I was happy not only because I didn't have to pay the price, but because in that moment I knew that my relationship with my father was okay. And I knew in that moment that he would forgive me and he knew the situation that I was in and he still said, it's okay. I'll take care of it. I think some of us in this room can really relate to this, this story specifically. There are some of us in here who have done things that we look back and we have a lot of regret and a lot of shame, whether it was intentional or unintentional. We live day to day replaying the memory, rethinking all the decisions that we made that led up to that. And we just think through and say, why did I do that? Why, why, why did I do that? We don't have hope. And like me, we feel as we'll never have enough to repay what we did. Sometimes it feels like our sins from our past are too big, are too horrible, and they can never be forgiven. I also think there's another group of us in this room who maybe don't really see a lot of the things that we do as wrong. Instead of viewing it as crashing into, crashing your dad's new car, you kind of just see it as bumping your toy car into someone else's toy car. The reality is that all sin, whether big or small, it still puts a vast distance between you and God. No matter how small it is or how big it is, the distance is still the same. He is just that holy. And maybe you haven't committed any big sins. Like maybe you haven't been sleeping around and, and maybe you haven't done drugs. Maybe you haven't robbed anybody. But <laughs> I would hope not. But I'm sure that every single person in this room has told a lie. And I'm sure that some of you have borrowed a pencil or an eraser and haven't given it back. I'm sure that most of you have seen an attractive person and not just been like, oh no, Lord Jesus, keep my eyes holy. <laughs> now, I want you to think of the culmination of all those sins. I want you to think through 18 to 20 years of those small charges. That adds up to a pretty big bill, doesn't it? The reality is that we cannot nor will we ever be able to pay back what we owe. And the beautiful thing is, this is where grace comes in. Maybe of us, many of us have probably heard the term grace. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably heard that word tossed around in movies, TV shows, and books, and stories, and probably you know somebody named Grace. There are different, there are different definitions depending on who you ask of what grace is. But I want to give you a very, very simple one and a simple way to understand it. Grace is God's unmerited favor and forgiveness towards us. You see, all, it, all sin in the world, all betrayal, all damage, all hurt has a consequence. Someone always has to pay the price. Even though the insurance covered the other vehicle, the bill still came. 
Someone had to pay to fix a car, and my dad showing me grace cost him. The car just wasn't, wasn't magically going to get fixed. And even though I didn't pay for it, he had to pay for it. Grace cost. When we think about God's grace, we have to understand that it doesn't deal mainly with material possessions or things of this world, but it has to deal with sin. There, has, there is a price that has to be paid every time we sin, but God, rich in mercy, pays our debts. So let's dive back into our text. So we read in the first verse that David was not supposed to be in his palace. He was supposed to be outside fighting with his troops. He was supposed to be in front leading the charge. He was supposed to be the one that was with his troops and saying, I'm here, let's do this together. Wars back then could not be fought in the winter. It was too cold. There was, there was no indoor heating. There were no winter jackets. It was cold. And in the Middle East, it's the rainy season. So spring and summer are the seasons where people go to fight battles. And yet, when we read through our text, we see that David remains in Jerusalem. This verse itself that we find is an indictment of David. Essentially, the author is saying, when, people are, when kings are supposed to be fighting, when people are supposed to be outside in battle, David is on the rooftop of his palace. David is not where he needs to be. David was not doing the things that he needed to be doing. This is a perfect breeding ground for sin to develop. God was calling David to the battlefield to fight the good fight, to fight the enemies of Israel and focus on what God was calling him to do. And yet he chooses to stay home. His idleness, his apathy, his disobedience, and his lack of motivation lead him to a place where he's not supposed to be. Listen, there, there's nothing inherently sinful about staying home. There's no commandment in the Bible that says, thou shall not stay home. But God knew the situation that David would find himself in. It's almost like God knew better than David. Too often we like to attribute the bad things that happen in our life to things that we can't control. But the reality is that sometimes it's our lack of discipline. It's our lack of obedience that leads us into sin. The devil, often, more, more often than not, does not directly attack us. He does not send demon armies to fight against us. He just takes advantage of our lack of discipline and apathy. We must recognize that sin thrives in the wrong actions, in the wrong place, at the wrong time. So I can best illustrate this with my story. A few months after coming to Chi Alpha, I was experiencing radical growth. I was encountering Jesus in ways that I had never done before. I, I really committed to this relationship with Jesus. And a few months later, I entered into a really unhealthy relationship. Once I entered into that relationship, I started to lose focus of what God was calling me to do. I started to lose grip of our relationship. And I really set my relationship on this pedal. It was the ultimate pedestal. It was the only thing in my life. What God was calling me to do was to set boundaries in our relationship to make sure that we were honoring God. And I'm not just talking about physical boundaries. Those are the most common, yes. 
but I'm also talking about time and priority boundaries. You see, because of our lack of discipline, we found ourselves doing things sexually that weren't honoring to God, but also at the same time, our devotional life suffered. The relationship with people around us suffered. And most importantly, our relationship with Jesus suffered. Not doing things, not doing the right things, led us to being in the wrong places. No boundaries meant that we could essentially be anywhere at any time for however long we wanted to be. And this led to a lot of purity issues, right? But this also looked like not being in community. Too often we would prioritize our relationship. And instead of coming to worship nights and prayer gatherings and even just general hangouts, we would decide to stay with each other. And we would just hang out. And again, there's nothing sinful about hanging out. But God was not calling us to be there. And it just led to more and more problems and us idol idolizing each other. And if you want to talk about timing, neither of us were really, really ready to be in a relationship. I was struggling deeply with a pornography and lust addiction and truthfully not seeking after the Lord in general. If we had taken the time to seek what Jesus wanted for us, if we had taken the time just to even get to know each other, we could have saved ourselves from so much pain and heartache. So what we can learn from this part of the story is practical. If you find yourself struggling with alcohol, you can't expect to go out on a Friday night and not be tempted. If you're struggling to connect with God, but you're not reading your Bible, but you're not praying, but you're not coming to worship gatherings and things like these, please start there. If you aren't feeling Jesus' presence, look at what you're doing and what you're prioritizing in life. And sometimes we have to recognize that sin doesn't always result from doing the wrong things, but sometimes from doing nothing. If you find yourself spending extravagant times on YouTube, social media, Netflix, hanging out with your friends, there's a good chance that you're not doing what you need to be doing. Doing nothing leads to doing unholy things. And doing unholy things means you're not doing holy things. We must be a people of obedience and do the things that we need to do. Amen? Cool. So as we continue through the story, David finds himself in a hard situation. Not only did he sleep with someone's wife, but he was the king who impregnated the wife of one of his trusty, trusted mighty men. So he has two options at this point. He can either confess what he has done and risk hurting his kingdom, his reputation, his relationship with Uriah, or he can find a way to hide it and hope that it doesn't come back to bite him. Unfortunately, David decides to do what seems easiest, and he digs himself in a deeper hole. He first tries to get Uriah to come back from battle and calls him into the palace and say, hey, why don't you go home and, and spend some time with your wife? That doesn't work. So then he tries again, and he gets Uriah drunk. He says, hey, you should go spend some time with your wife, and that doesn't work. So David is then forced to take more extreme measures. So we'll go back into our text, starting in verse 14 of chapter 11. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, which is David's top military commander, and sent it by the wife or by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the battle in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him 
that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. You see, instead of bringing his sin into the light, David tries to hide it. And he gets himself into this bigger situation, and it causes him to fall into more sin. What we can get from this part of David's story is sin that isn't confessed will ultimately ultimately lead us into places we never thought we would be, doing things that we never thought we would. We're often led to believe that sin is like this dangerous wild animal that we can keep contained and we can tame it. But the reality is that that's fur, that couldn't be further from the truth. Sin is much less like a wild animal and more so like an uncontrollable and often fatal cancer. Cancer does not play by any rules. It can spread like wildfire within a matter of days and weeks. It can lie dormant and wait for the right moment to cause harm. It can disguise itself as harmless and evade detection. And it can affect many different areas of our body and our minds. Courtney Reisig, a cancer survivor and blogger, puts it this way. Sin doesn't play by the rules. Sin hides, lurking behind our excuses and complacency. Sin spreads like wildfire, like cancer. If you leave any small part of it, leave any amount of sin behind and you're in trouble. It will multiply faster than you can root it out. And the next thing you know, you're headlong into rebellion. Destroyed by the cancer of your own desires. Sin, like cancer, has one mission— leave no survivors. It feeds on leftover tissue that assumes it is harmless. It grows when we let our guard down. It wants to take every healthy part of us until what's left is a shell of a person. Like cancer, sin leaves us utterly unrecognizable to those who love us. Pieces of you have to be removed. You will have to be destroyed in order to be rebuilt, healthy and whole. It will hurt for a lifetime, but it will lead to abundant life. It can be easy to think that David's sin happened in in one single moment, but the reality is that Uriah was a part of a group known as David's mighty men, and there were only 37 of them. That's all of the small group leaders. He knew them personally. So he had met Bathsheba before. It wasn't just this one-time thing where David saw her from the roof and was like, oh, she's pretty, and then boom, started going. No, it was constantly just denying his inner sin. It was constantly denying his actions. It was continuously just giving in to his lustful desires. So this turned into having a lustful desire, and even after finding out that it was Uriah's wife, he continued to enable his sinful desire, which then led to his adultery. His adultery led an unwanted pregnancy, which then led to deceitfulness, and it finally led to murder. Sin left undealt with breeds more sin and leads to death. James 1, uh, 14-15 puts it this way, each, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it gives consent, when it has conceived, gives birth, to sin, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is finally fully grown, brings forth death. Sin never stays in the box that we try to put it in. It defies the boundaries that we try to set. 
And if left unchecked in your heart, it will lead to spiritual decay and even death. When I first entered my previous relationship, I had this mindset that as long as her and I didn't go all the way, God and I were still okay. So thinking that I was strong enough, we didn't really take the time to set any boundaries. I believed that I could fight off the temptations. I believed that I could tell myself no. So I got this. And as time went on, we pushed further and further and further and further, and soon enough, we went all the way. I lost the strength to say no. And this one-time thing turns into a daily habit, and this daily habit then turns into a very deep addiction. As I find myself in this hole, like David, I fear the damage my sin will do to my reputation, to the relationships with my small group leader, who was Derek at the time, my pastor, Pastor Daniel, our parents, to my leadership position. And so I decide to take the same approach. My lust soon turned into deceit. I was so full of pride over my image and how others would think of me that instead of turning to my community, instead of turning to the people around me who could help me and give me accountability, I continued to act like it was okay. If I would have just been honest about my sin, no matter how small it was, I could have gotten help. And it would have saved me from two years of heartache and misery. But sin bred more sin, and it led to death. Please, if you hear anything, don't let the sin of pride keep you from being vulnerable. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, from the bottom of my heart, it will lead to more. It will always lead to more. And the thing is, the the chain of events that happened in David's story and mine, they're not the outliers, they're not the unusual. It wasn't just this anomaly. This is the pattern of sin. Sin, although powerful, influential, and destructive, it is actually quite predictable. You may not find yourself watching someone bathing from a rooftop, but you will find yourself saying one mean comment or judgment. And then that will turn on to full gossip and slander. All it takes is one small start. We have to start with the little things. If you can confess that, that in those initial thoughts of bitterness that you had towards someone, you'll find yourself miles away from a long grudge. If you can confess those early feelings of anger towards someone who betrayed you or hurt you, you'll find yourself far from having a calloused heart. If you can confess those little moments of pride, you'll keep yourself from, being, from becoming a self-conceited and self-centered person. I promise you that one racy picture online, that one intimate touch from your significant other, that one bitter thought, that one beer or shot, that one little lie will always lead to more. And before you know it, you'll find yourself doing things you never thought you would in places you never thought you would be. So students, let's work together as a community that can confess the little things. Let's be a community that can find freedom together. So now, going back to our story, after Uriah dies in battle, it seems as if the problem has been solved, right? David can rest easy. Uriah is dead. No one else is going to find out. 
He felt as if he had swept everything under the rug, and he's all good. But he had forgotten one crucial piece of information. God knew. God had seen David's trajectory from the moment he first laid eyes on Bathsheba. And yet, God still loved David to let him stay where he was at. See, God had all the right in that moment to just smite David and bring a thunderbolt from heaven. But instead, he sends Nathan a trusted friend. And all he does is present reality. So Nathan starts by proceeding, he starts by telling him a story. And this is kind of a way for David to understand really where he's at. We read this in verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 12 in 2 Samuel. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and he grew it, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare it for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. So after hearing this story, David is just ticked, he's enraged, and he demands that justice be served. He wants debts to be paid. How could someone ever do that to a peasant? I just don't understand. We read his response in verses 5 through 6. Then David, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the one who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Oof. And then Nathan answers back. He says this, starting in verse 7 of that same chapter. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, as if, if this were not enough, I would have given, given you more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of Ammonites. And as Nathan lays all of this before David, he could have responded a few different ways, right? He could have tried to justify his actions. Like, you don't understand. She tempted me. I just couldn't control myself. He could have lied about it and just said, no, nah, you got it wrong. That's not me. I would never do such a thing. He couldn't even, he could have just ran away. He could have, could have just gotten Bathsheba and left. But he responds this way in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And now this point in the story, it's so crucial because in that moment, it's, it's only in that moment when God can begin to restore David and heal him from his sin. It's only in that moment where David decides to say, God, I, it's me, I did it. God, I, 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 I confess, I'm the one who did it. It takes that moment for God to be able to work in David. He needed to be reminded of his shortcomings and the ways that he was failing so that he could let go of his pride. Because that's what it was, right? He needed to be broken of his pride. 
in our moment of sinfulness, we have two options. We can either despair in our brokenness, which if you think about it, it's a form of pride. It's, it's being centered on ourselves. Or we can take delight. We can delight in who God is. We can delight in his mercy towards us. And we can just say, Jesus, I, I did it. But please fix me. Jesus, I, I need you. I, I did this, but I just need your help. There is power in the moment where we are confronted with our sin and we choose to say, Jesus, yes, it's me. There's power in the, time, in the moment from the depths of our hearts. We say, God, I'm sorry I have sinned against you and only you. I need your forgiveness and mercy. I need your help to be cleansed from my sin. We must be humble enough to be like David and run to God in our sinfulness. And we know that we can run to God because he is good. He won't cast us out, but instead he'll welcome us with open arms. We must humble ourselves before God. As I mentioned earlier, I had been lying and hiding my sin for over two years, and just like David, God sends trusted friends to confront me. So Pastor Daniel and Pastor Derek eventually find out about what's exactly going and what has been happening, and Derek has no choice but to confront me about my sin. They invite me over to his house, and we have a meeting, and they ask, say, we just want the truth. Give us the entire truth. And so I lay everything out, everything that has happened. They continue to rebuke me, of course. But then we get to the end of all corrections and all the practical things of what that might look like in the future in terms of leadership. And Daniel softly encourages me, and I've shared a little bit about that a few months ago. And, and really that moment is a changing point of my faith, but I, I want to focus about what happens afterwards. As I'm driving home, I'm so overwhelmed with shame, with disgust, with fear, with anger, bitterness, and so many other negative things. I feel completely broken. I know that God has forgiven me, but I can't help but feel shame and guilty. Where do I go from here? I knew that I was broken inside, but I had hope that Jesus could heal my heart and he could make me clean again. And all I needed to do was just humble myself and seek after the Lord. And truthfully, there were many nights during that season where I would get a, a towel, yes, a towel, and I would put it underneath my feet and I would just sit there hours on end and just weep before the Lord. I would put on soaking in his presence, and I'm sure you've heard that, but ambient music, and I would just sit there and I would weep. Literally, there was no reason, nothing had happened to when I told me anything. I just felt that I needed to be near God, and that's all that I could offer. And I promise you, this isn't, look, look at me. This is what I did. I pulled myself out of that, that hole. No, this is me saying, I understood my weakness. I didn't say, God, I can do this myself. It was in that moment where I said, God, I can't do this, actually. And the moment that I submitted myself to Jesus, man, I can't describe anything like it. And slowly after time, a decade-long pornography addiction broke. I started incorporating a habitual practice of confession. I began restoring and building relationships with those around me. And for the first time in my life, in my life, I had been following, following Jesus for 15 plus years. I began to feel the presence of God near me. So what do we do practically about this idea? 
Well, first, it's important to look at your own heart and evaluate how you're doing in terms of humility. I know this is kind of difficult to gauge, like there's no meter that reads humility. But what I want you to think of is, how do you feel when you get challenged? And this could be your small group leader, this could be your resource leader, this could be your parents, your boss, whoever you want to put in there. Do you find yourself being defensive, evasive, or deceitful? And hear me, if that's the case, I get it. I was there. I did all three. But I want to encourage you, please open up your heart and try to think through what it is that they're trying to tell you. If you're closed off to correction, it might be because you have an incorrect, incorrect view of God's character. Maybe you think that God is out there waiting to punish you. But time after time, Scripture says that God is faithful, he's merciful, and he's slow to anger. God isn't ready just to, he's not waiting to smite you, but he wants you to run back to him. At the same time, it will not do to just simply throw a few sorries here and there and hope, and hope that it will work out. Confession takes genuine humility, and if you find yourself just throwing up sorries, repent of that as well. Ask the Lord to break the fear and pride that's in your heart. And this is not me pointing at you. This is me saying this is what I've experienced. And the other thing we have to recognize is David didn't just slump into this deep depression over his sin. He instead turned to God and trusted that the Lord could restore and heal him. If we're feeling grief over our sin or addiction or whatever it is, we have to choose to give it to God. This doesn't always look like praying. This doesn't always mean you go and, and you tell your smoke leaders. Sometimes this means that you run to your door, to your room, you close the door, and you just sit there and just weep before Jesus. We must understand the weight of our sin, but at the same time, we shouldn't be crushed by it. We must cast our burdens on Jesus, but we have to be willing to let him have it all. So I know up until this point, it might seem like a, here's what you should do to prevent yourself from getting to this place, but maybe you're thinking, I'm already in this deep pit of sin. Or maybe I've made too many mistakes and I'm just too far gone. You don't understand. I just want to encourage you guys. There's still good news. If we finish reading verse 13, we see the results of David, David's humility. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a second, what do you think is going through David's mind during this period of time? If we read a few verses after this specific point of the story, David repents, but unfortunately he has to suffer earthly consequences. And that's still true for us. If you decide to steal from a store, they will put you in jail. That is not divine judgment. That is earthly consequences. God will still forgive you if you decide to steal, but there are still rules and laws here on earth. So after the night I was over at Derek's house, I understood that God had forgiven me. I knew that he had covered my sin, but the reality is that I look back a lot, right? And I would think, I've done this. 
I'm a horrible person. I really didn't look to the future and see a lot of hope. I thought, truthfully, there's no one who's going to ever want to be with me again. I've screwed up so badly. I've made a lot of mistakes. I just deserve to be with someone who's as bad as I am. And it's what I deserve. I would imagine some of you in this room feel like this. You've heard multiple sermons about God's forgiveness. You've been to plenty of services. You've had people pray over you. But in your mind, you're just thinking, you don't understand what I've done. I'm just too far gone. Or maybe it's, I've screwed up so many times, God can't forgive all those times. But I want to tell you, there is no place that you can go that God's grace can't reach you. There is no place that you can run and hide without God's love chasing after you. So if we go back to our text one last time, we read in verse 24 something beautiful. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Now, I know the first part is pretty graphic and it's a little uncomfortable, but I want to focus on the second half of that verse. You see, David's first child had died because of his sin. And I'm assuming that left him pretty broken inside and pretty afraid, right? He maybe felt unworthy to ever be a father or maybe that he didn't deserve to be happy anymore. But then a miracle happened. Bathsheba, the woman of adultery, becomes the mother of a future kingdom. You see, Solomon wasn't just a child. He was so much more than that. You see, because as David held Solomon in his arms as a newborn, as he got to watch Solomon take his first steps in the palace, as he, watched him, as he got to watch him go to school for the first time, as he got to witness him become a man who was after God, and even to the last moments of David's life where he is just able to hold Solomon and anoint him and, and pray, pray blessings over him, David was reminded of God's good grace. In the place where David found his deepest despair, he found his greatest hope. Can I tell you, students, Solomon was greatest, God's greatest reminder of grace to David. Mine is sitting back there. Now, I know this might seem a little cheesy, but I want to share with you, students, my wife, Lexi, is God's greatest reminder to my life of his goodness. As I said earlier, I felt as if no one would ever want to be with me. I felt as if once they knew the mistakes that I had done, all the bad things that I had committed, they would look at me in disgust. They would look at me and say, who are you? Get away from me. They would be disgusted with what I had done. And yet, as I feel completely unworthy, a cute little blonde, Diet Coke loving, McDonald's eating, fashionable, Jesus loving woman wandered into my life. I once remember sharing all of the junk in my life with her, all the different ways that I had screwed up, all the ways that I was imperfect. And she looked down and she thought for a second and she looked up at me and she said, you know I still love you, right? I still want to be with you. And as she continued to respond to my text, 
and as she continued to approach me after Chi Alpha and church, as we continued to go get sodas together at McDonald's, even to the first time that she told me she loved me, to the time where she said yes when I asked her to marry me, and to the day that I stood across from her on the altar, I was reminded of God's good, good grace. We have to know. We have to know God's grace can still restore us no matter how far we've gone. If you're in this place and you're doubting whether God can redeem you or whether or not he can still work through your life, I want to share this verse with you. We're almost finished here. In Matthew 1, chapter 6, in the NIV version, when we're going through Jesus' lineage, we read this. And it doesn't make sense, but I'll give a little bit more context. And Jesse, the king, and Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You see, Matthew is going through this lineage and saying who was who and who and who and who brought Jesus to the earth. And it was written in a really, really specific way. Because if, if we read through this, we don't find a list of kings and nobles and perfect elites. We find a list of screw-ups. And when we get to Solomon, we find that the author chooses to include Bathsheba. And he chooses to write that she was Uriah's wife. This wasn't done to point at her and shame her and say, Yep, this was the woman of adultery. But this was the point and say, even through this, God can still work. God can still redeem us and give us a future that we can't even begin to imagine. God was setting up this pattern of forgiveness and grace for something far greater than we could ever find in 2 Samuel. God is still in the business of taking broken things and making them new again. God is still in the business of restoring lost dreams and hopes. God is still in the business of turning mourning into dancing. God is still in business, period, and his currency is mercy. We don't have to travel miles and miles away to make a blood sacrifice for our sin and hope that we can stay pure long enough so we don't have to make that same trip. But instead, we can run to the feet of Jesus. You see, God sent one final payment that would settle all accounts. He sent his son Jesus who would come and live a perfect life and pay the price for our sins. There is no bill big enough that you can make. There is no charge that's too big for his blood. David's story was just the forecast into the future. And we only got to see, he only got to see a sliver of what God was going to do. We have full access to the sacrifice of Jesus who covers our sins and can erase any debt, any shame, any guilt, and any fear. You just have to put your trust into him. Forgiveness is closer than you can ever imagine and grace is infinitely larger than, you can, than your greatest sins and weaknesses. Jesus can make you pure, and clean again. And he can restore all that was broken and lost and stolen from you. All we have to do is surrender ourselves to him and ask him to be the Lord of our lives. He's ready to breathe life. 
into what was dead. But all we have to do is ask. Our main idea is this, to live a life worth emulating. We must humble ourselves and accept God's grace. Students, we only have a few weeks left. Some of you are graduating. Some of you are going home. The reality is that some of you won't have this community for a while, and some of you will not have this community ever again. You will not have someone who checks in on you daily or weekly. And some of you will go back into an environment that's incredibly toxic and reminds you of your past. What I want to do, and I know this is a little unusual, but I want to open up these altars. And what I mean by that is I just want to give you guys an opportunity to respond. I want to give you guys an opportunity to leave your shame, your guilt, your fears here. If there's sin in your life that you haven't confessed, if there's things that you were doing that you haven't told anybody, if there's this thing that's weighing you down, please, in this moment, I beg you to give it to Jesus. I ask you, I urge you, because for someone who knows two years of misery and suffering and pain, it's not worth that uncomfortable hardship, that uncomfortable initial conversation. I promise you, leave it here at the feet of Jesus. And I know it's a little uncomfortable to come and kneel in front of your peers and your friends, but please take a, take a step of faith. Leave what you have at the feet of Jesus. So I'm gonna pray for you. I'm gonna ask you guys to come to the front and just pray to Jesus. And you don't have to come if you feel uncomfortable. If you don't wanna do it, that's fine. But please take this opportunity. You will not have very many of these in the future. So I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna ask you guys to come forward. So Jesus, we just pray right now, God, that you would start breaking chains. God, that you would start leaving behind these feelings of pride, Jesus, that in this moment we would leave all that we have, God. Jesus, I pray that we'd give everything to you tonight, no matter what it is. Jesus, I just pray that we would leave these, these altar. Holy Spirit, would you come and just speak into hearts tonight? Would you speak fresh revelation to students tonight? In Jesus' mighty name.